Well, this is Ed Stetzer Live, and this and every Saturday at this time, we bring you, I think, fascinating conversations with fascinating people about fascinating topics. So I'm Ed Stetzer. I have the privilege of serving as the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, you see at a lot of Christian colleges and universities today, you know, Moody, from Moody Bible Institute to Biola University, lots of other places around is this, uh, this conversation about apologetics. Of course, it's not just at university level, but people talking about apologetics kind of all over the place. And the question you have to ask is why? And, and what, for example, what's apologetics? Probably good for us to define that before we jump into our conversation with our guest in just a minute. So apologetics is actually from a Greek word that means speaking in defense. And basically, apologetics is, the, uh, is this field of, uh, of, of kind of explaining, and you might even say defending, the Christian faith. Now, of course, you can have apologetics in other faiths as well, but Christian apologetics, we, and the idea of Christian apologetics actually goes back a very, very long time. Sometimes people see that as a modern thing. Where we're sort of answering questions that maybe skeptics ask today, and though it certainly is that, you know, very famous book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, probably the first big, big popular book in and around that. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But we can actually go back to the earliest church and a very early Christian apologetics. Uh, and this is, this is how early Christians would seek to explain and defend the faith to uh, maybe a skeptical or questioning world. Now, now a couple of things that are probably key to remember here is the questions change over time and in different cultures. And, uh, you know, as a missiologist, that's my field. I have a PhD in the area of mission or missions. As a missiologist, I'm recognized that if we're having an apologetics conversation in a uh, majority world location that maybe doesn't have a Western secular mindset, the apologetics questions are always very, very different. So, so that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. And so, but the idea here is, is that, and we looked at the scripture for some of the, the, the background that points us to here. Matter of fact, the, the, the first place we maybe see this and use the word, the Apostle Paul is actually uh, giving a speech before Festus and Agrippa. And he, he actually says, this is in Acts 26.2, he says, I make my defense. And that's actually the word, apologia. So I make my defense. And we see in other places in Scripture, like 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, be ready to give an answer. And I've loved that passage. I've preached on that passage lots of times, be ready to give an answer. Or in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul writes that he is defending the gospel. Now, the challenge with the word apologetics, it sounds like apology. And, and, and again, it's not, you're not apologizing for your faith, but you're actually explaining and defending your faith. Now, what's happened is there's a whole lot of people who, um, who rely on people who kind of speak into this area, apologists, right? Apologists teach in and around apologetics. And um, one of the persons who's written a New York Times bestseller book would be someone like Tim Keller. So Tim Keller was a pastor of a church in New York City, recently went on to be with the Lord, but also wrote books that were um, apologetic in nature. But then there are also people who are, who, who, are who are actually in this field as their primary focus. So, and there are Christian universities, as I mentioned, that have whole departments in that. We have that at uh, the Talbot School of Theology. We have an apologetics program as well. And I'm going to introduce our guest in just a minute. We'll talk some about that. But I think this is the kind of program that you'll find super helpful. And if you, you might not be a bad idea. If you want to text somebody who says, well, I got some questions about what 
Christians believe, and, and what's the evidence for what Christians believe? Is there any evidence for what Christians believe? Because throughout 2,000 years of history, there are some really um, smart, amazing people who have looked at the Christian faith and said, I believe this to be true. And one of the more fascinating things, maybe people who sometimes uh, look into the Christian faith almost trying to disprove it, and then themselves are challenged by the evidence and respond, as Christians we would say, respond by grace and through faith and become followers of Jesus. So so maybe this will be a, an episode that will uh, strengthen your faith. I think that's part of the role of apologetics, to know that there are reasonable Christian answers to questions that people raise, but also you may have friends or family members and you might want to say, hey, this would be an episode that you want to listen to as well. So I want to encourage you to to share this with other people as well. So let me tell you about my guest. My guest is Dr. Sean McDowell. He's an associate professor of Christian apologetics in the program that I mentioned earlier at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Man, he speaks at camps and churches and schools, universities and conferences. He's the co-host of the Think Biblically podcast. I've had the privilege of being on that just recently. We'll link that at the show notes at edstetzerlive.com. But he's an author, uh, co-author, or editor of over 20 books, including Chasing Love, The Fate of the Apostles, and Evidence for Jesus, Timeless Questions for Tough Questions About Christ. We've had some technological difficulties connecting with him and keeping that connection So at the beginning, so we apologize for some of those things. But I know you'll want to hear from Sean. Sean also has one of the leading apologetics blogs, which can be read at seanmcdowell.org. But as always, all of these things are also connected at edstetzerlive.com. The book we're going to talk about today is Evidence for Jesus by Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. And we're going to lean into those conversations and take your calls as well. So let's jump into that conversation now. Uh, Why did you write the book? Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, so my father first wrote the book you mentioned, Evidence Demands a Verdict, in 1972, and that came out of him trying to disprove Christianity and being compelled by the evidence positively for it. As you know, Ed, there was no historical apologetics at that point. And so when this book came out, it just hit and became a mega bestseller. And over the years, we've he's updated it three or four times, and most recently in 2017, we updated it together. But that book is over 700 pages in length. It's a reference book. And we'd hear from people somewhat frequently, you know, is there a smaller digestible version of this book? And so Evidence for Jesus takes out of Evidence Demands Verdict and adds a lot of new material to some chapters we get into just for somebody who says, you know what, maybe I got 10 minutes a day to just kind of shore up myself and know why the Bible's true, Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus claimed to be God, et cetera. So that's really kind of the background to this book. Okay, good. So I, I love I love the, you know, I, like so many, I mean, everyone's got an evidence that demands a verdict story. I, I do as well, but we will skip that part for, for the moment because sure. I want to talk some about, because I mean, in some ways the conversation has changed, but in some ways it's familiar or similar. Uh, you know, we're still talking about, is there evidence Jesus was real? Um, we're still talking about uh, the resurrection, obviously, and more. So let's talk about that. Let me also invite our callers in as well. Thank you for your patience, callers, for our technological glitch. But our phone number is 877-548-3675. Again, that's 877-548-3675. So in apologetics in general, one of the things I've been saying and for a few years now is that as the culture becomes more secular, 
apologetics is becoming more important. So what role do you think apologetics plays in evangelism, in the Christian witness, in really the place of Christians, uh, you know, kind of building up their own faith? Where does, what does it play? There's something about apologetics that as Christians feel challenged and sometimes threatened in their faith, then they turn to apologetics. That's the task of apologists is to try to convince people apart from some crisis in their life or their relationships or the culture that apologetics really matters. Now, of course, that raised the question, why does it actually matter? Well, I'd make the case that Jesus was an apologist. Paul was an apologist. Some of the first followers of the church were called apologists. What are they doing? Well, they're basically responding to challenges coming from the culture, and they're also advancing positive reasons why Christianity is true. So there's kind of a positive and a negative component to apologetics. Now, I, I would kind of frame it this way. Ed. I think there's timeless questions, and I think there's timely questions. So timeless questions are, does God exist? Why is there evil? And really, who is Jesus? This book is about 90% timeless questions, although we have some timely ones in there related to like, how can you say Jesus is the only way? And so as apologists, we've got to address the timely issues. Maybe that's things people would say tied to race or tied to sexuality, etc. But then these timeless questions about Jesus are the ones we want to draw people back to. So bottom line in the church, apologetics helps Christians shore up with confidence in their faith, but it also helps remove barriers for unbelievers like my father who are open and willing to consider the claims of Jesus. Yeah, and this the book, the book here is, of course, Evidence for Jesus, Timeless Answers for Tough Questions About Christ. So mainly focuses on the timeless places. And there's, and of course, people can go to seanmcdowell.com. There's all kinds of places where you're addressing uh, timely issues as well. But I think for a lot of people, I mean, the age-old questions remain. And I mean, there are some pretty bold truth claims that Christians make and 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 that Christians believe and and you know there's there's well to to say it again there's some evidence that does uh, demand some verdict or some response and those bold questions are part of what we're going to talk about in just a moment as well let me remind you that we're taking your calls uh, our number is eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five talking to Sean McDowell our discussions around apologetics we're actually going to give away a few copies of his book not just to random callers but to people with thoughtful insightful questions or comments at eight. 8- Seven seven five four eight three six seven five. Last time eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five. Hey, we're back. We're here with the Biola University Talbot School of Theology professor, Sean McDowell. He teaches Christian apologetics there with us at the Talbot School of Theology, but also just as a well-known in this area of apologetics. And so we've already started some discussion around this, and 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 we might also talk about uh, evidential apologetics. There's different fields of apologetics, just so you're aware. We, I don't know how much technical we'll get into today, but let's just start talking about some of the issues, some of the questions that people do have. Uh, it's not uncommon that still there are people who say that there's no evidence that Jesus was a real historical person. Is that true, Sean, or what What was our response be? So it depends on what realm. In academics, that's virtually non-existent conversation from the left to the right, theologically speaking. On the internet, yeah, you hear that a lot. It's called mythicism. 
I think there's no good reason to doubt that Jesus existed. We have obviously all the New Testament books from the Gospels to the letters of Paul, First uh, Timothy, Peter, etc. You go on and on. You have other early Christian writers, people like Ignatius. Uh, you have people going to the second century, uh, like Irenaeus, etc. And then third, you have non-Christian writers, Romans like Tacitus, Jewish writers like Josephus, placing this person, Jesus, unmistakably in the time that the Gospels do. So there's no reason to doubt his existence. Even Bart Ehrman, interestingly enough, who I would say is one of the most influential atheists slash agnostics today, probably worldwide, wrote a whole book on the existence of Jesus minimally, saying for atheists to make such a claim is just kind of silly and misguided. Yeah, and fa fascinating journey with Bert Ehrman as well. And so I, I love that you cite him as an example. So um, so again, the idea that Jesus existed is pretty uh, widely attested outside of the internet. You know, they can't they can't put stuff on the internet unless it's true. But let's let's just assume that it's not always <laughs> that helpful. So. Um, but but then the question becomes: All right, if Jesus was there, um, if he if he lived a life two thousand years ago, he could have been one of countless messianic figures in that time in Judaism and that place in the ancient Near East. He could, it could have been he could have been a teacher, could have been a rabbi, could have been a revolutionary. I mean, to, to claim, and this is where we talk about this: Christians make some bold claims that that Jesus uh, is God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. So did Jesus actually claim to be God? And what's the, again, using the question, what's the evidence that might point to that? This is really the heart of the, the question we have to answer, because Jesus said the most important question is, who do you say that I am? So Buddhism doesn't rest on the identity of Buddha. Hinduism doesn't rest on the identity of Krishna. But Christianity rests on the identity of Jesus. And we find, for example, in John 10, 25, and then 30 through 33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, some have said, oh, yeah, he later says, you know, I am one with you, and I, I pray that you're one with the disciples. But in this context, they pick up rocks to stone him for blasphemy because being a man, they he made himself to be God. <laughs> That's in John 10. You have another example in John 8, shortly before that, where some of the religious leaders said to him, you're not 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said, most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to throw at him. That I am is a reference to how God revealed himself in Exodus 3 to Moses. Now, you could also go to the other Gospels and see Jesus did things that only God could do. Like in Mark chapter 2, he forgave the man's sins who, was, who were committed against God. Jesus had the authority of God in himself and could act as God. He allows worship. We see multiple times in the Gospels. And of course, in Revelation 22, it comes out that Jesus is the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, and they worship him. So, over and over again, Jesus claims to be God. Of course, he doesn't use the words, I am God, but he does things and says things that only God can do. Those closest to him or those who knew him or saw him, people like John the Baptist, claim that Jesus is God. Here comes the lamb of the world, so to speak. And then the early church fathers start, those who come right after him, refer to him as God. So from beginning to end of the Gospels, we see this claim that Jesus isn't a God, he isn't a truth. 
He's the God of the Old Testament, and he is the truth in living flesh. Now, if Jesus made those claims, that means we only have so many responses we can give to that kind of claim. But, but, but Sean, um, the, the disciples, they, they um, you know, looking back, you know, I mean, Jesus was a legendary figure, and the myth that, that the disciples and, and, and Paul, the myth maker, and these other disciples sort of, sort of built— Sure, they, they, they could later put words in Jesus' mouth or develop a theology that he was more than he said he was. I mean, all we have to go on is these early writers who didn't write, you know, they didn't write a, a week after he said these things. They, they embellished and added, you know, someone's going to take this clip and put this on the Internet and say Ed Stetzer is a heretic. <laughs> but but so, 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 so talk to, I mean, answer that question, that objection. Okay, so there's there's actually a bunch of objections embedded in this. Is the scriptures written too late to be trustworthy? Did they invent the teachings of Jesus, etc.? Let's take the first one. So the objection does go that the apostles and maybe Paul made up this story about Jesus. Well, you've got to come up with a motive to do so. What was their motive to do so? Now, sometimes people will look two thousand years later and say, "Look, they're famous. They changed the world." And I'm saying at that point. They had no idea, given the power of the Roman Empire, that such an effect would result from their beliefs. They had no idea. That's just kind of an anti-chronological view looking back on it. But it also got them to be persecuted and to suffer. I did my entire doctoral dissertation on this, that the apostles, we know, I mean, all scholars agree that they believe they had experiences of the risen Jesus and then they go out and start proclaiming this message that Jesus had risen from the grave, and it comes at their own expense. They put themselves in harm's way for this message. And by the way, we know this for the apostles. We also know it distinctly for Paul. So any explanation is going to have to account why we have Paul, who was persecuting the apostles, and the apostles themselves believing and proclaiming this message. And the idea that they just invented it, it just doesn't ring true with the facts. Everything seems to uh, rise and fall on the resurrection. If the resurrection's real, uh, then, you know, I, I, was, I did it. A lot of people, Tim Keller answered this question to a lot of people, but I did an interview with him before he died. And he said at one point in this interview, like he said, lots of others, um, if, uh, if the resurrection's real, everything's going to be okay. And, and I really think that's a powerful statement. So for me, uh, you know, these, you know, the phrase, these things didn't happen in a corner comes to mind. I love the passage where he appeared to hundreds at one time. So for me, even when I might struggle, I just recently preached at my, my church in Chicago. Uh, and, and I, I said, you know, when, when I have times of questions to me, I come to this passage that he appeared to hundreds at one time. These didn't happen in a corner. These are historical realities. So do we have more evidence of the resurrection. Is that something, because that's, I mean, it's going to rise and fall on that. Let me remind people too, that we're taking your calls and we're going to take your calls in just a minute, but 877-548-3675. We've got some lined up already. 877-548-3675. So, so, I mean, I guess the question in general is, did Jesus rise from the dead and how do we know? Well, the first part of your question, I think, was really good that that Tim Keller nailed it. And I find it interesting towards the end of his life, he's writing a book on forgiveness and thinking about the meaning of the resurrection because he had already established in his mind that it was true. 
And 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. Everything quite literally rests on the single testable historical event. Now, I teach a full class here at Talbot, a full semester on the evidence for this. But very simply, historically, I, I need you to settle that in in a two minute answer. A whole class it. in two you, minutes. You basically you basically go in a semester at Talbot right here. Let's do it. Boom. Let's go. And I'm not going to breathe just for the record. So <laughs> first off, we know that Jesus died by crucifixion. We have multiple accounts of this. We have non-Christian accounts of this. They wouldn't invent such an embarrassing fate for their hero, so to speak. Second, we have good reason to believe that the tomb is empty. One reason being that it was discovered by women. Why would they invent the first witnesses, somebody who in that culture testimony was not considered as significant as a man? Yet all four gospels report that. So Jesus died by crucifixion. The tomb is empty. Third, we have all these appearance accounts of the 500 to the 12 to the seven uh, to the women to Paul, who's outside of the apostles themselves. We have to account for those appearance accounts. And then finally, you have this explosion of the early church rooted in the claim that Jesus had risen and these bold lives saying Jesus had risen to them with a kind of boldness that, uh, that Keller said, if Jesus is risen, everything is going to be okay. So if you just look at these basic facts that virtually all historians and scholars will agree on virtually, the question is what explanation accounts for all of them? And there is only one explanation that can account for all the facts without trying to jerry-rig them if you're open to the supernatural. And that is that Jesus actually lived, died, was buried, rose on the third day, and appeared to people. That's the best explanation of the facts that we know. Yeah, so so I guess the question then become is how come how come everybody doesn't come to that conclusion? when they when they investigate the facts you mentioned Bart Ehrman earlier and you know obviously uh you know goes to Moody Bible Institute goes to uh goes to Wheaton College go gets an MDiv from Princeton studies under someone named Bruce, Met Bruce Metzger who's amazing and comes to very different conclusions so let and let maybe I shouldn't point just to him but there are people who investigate the evidence that demands a verdict and come with a different decision are they just not looking at it correctly or what I think there can be a lot of different reasons, emotional religions, reasons, relational reasons, worldview reasons, but we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, look in the story in John 10 and 11, where Lazarus is raised from the dead on the fourth day. They weren't given evidence of an event 2000 years ago. They knew that he was dead. It was stinking. The tomb is closed and they laugh at Jesus when he says he's going to raise him from the dead. And he calls out Lazarus, and they see it. So that's even more compelling. They saw it with their own eyes. And do they fall down and worship Jesus? No. They want to run Jesus out of town and kill Lazarus. I mean, poor guy already died once, right? So what does that minimally tell us? Even as Christians who advance a case for this, we shouldn't be surprised for this reason and many other reasons. Now, in the case of the religious leaders, I think it was their authority. I think it was their power. I think there was a spiritual stubbornness. So bottom line is we can lay out the evidence for those with eyes to see and with ears to hear and assuming that the Holy Spirit is working in somebody's life and then trust that to the Lord. My job is not to convert anybody. My job is to live out the Christian life faithfully and my job is to be ready with an answer when people ask. And when we do that, 
it's amazing how many people will come to believe. By the way, even in Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul presents at Mars Hill and he gives a certain level of evidence, what happens? Only a few believe. Most didn't. So built mm -hmm. into the Christian faith is the sense that most people aren't simply going to believe because there's more at play than just reasons itself. Okay, good. Let's jump into our phone calls. Um, let me remind everybody, just to let you know, John, we're going to go to you in Miami first. D in Vermont, we're coming to you after, so you folks can be ready. Let me remind you that we're talking to Sean McDowell. We're actually talking about his book, Evidence for Jesus, um, with Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. Uh, let's jump into a quick call. So, D, we're going to go to you first. You're live on the air with your question and or your comment. Uh, we got about maybe 30 seconds for your question, so just jump in. D, are you there? Please go right ahead right now. Yes. Um, I, I have a son who uh, is in Iraq, and he, is an exp he has expressed an interest in the gospel the first time ever. He's in his 30s, and I just don't know how to deal with this. I mean, I don't know, you know, what to say to him. Um you know, it's kind of, it, he's a long way away, and I'd like some suggestions, maybe. Good. Well, let me uh, mention to you, Dee, we're going to give you a copy of Sean and Josh's book, which I think will help with that as well, Evidence for Jesus. And on the other side, we're going to have Sean weigh in on maybe some other resources, other ways to kind of continue this conversation. Uh, let me remind you, you're listening to Ed Stetzer Live, and you go to edstetzerlive.com to find the links to Sean's information, to his website, to his resources. Lots there, Dee, that you might find helpful as well. We're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. Again, our phone number is 877-548-3675. When we come back, Sean's going to weigh in on this 30-year-old son. How might I share more with him? We're going to continue our conversation with Sean McDowell. Your calls in just a moment. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live. We're here with Sean McDowell. Just had a great question from D in Vermont. And so, Sean, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna give copy a copy of the book to D in Vermont, as 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 I mentioned. But what other resources, in addition to Evidence for Jesus, would you suggest that might be helpful? Because I think it's not just D maybe asking, but a lot of people, you know, when they're having this conversation. I, I was recently on an airplane. And I talked to the person sitting next to me and uh, gave gave her, I actually ordered, I was on the airport Wi-Fi. So I said, would you like to order these books? I'll get these for you right now. And I gave her a couple of books and maybe I'll share what those were in a little bit. But what would you recommend for, for Dee to share with her son and in general for people to share maybe with young people who are young, younger adults who are having questions about these things? Well, first off, Dee, I would just really encourage you. I know you are praying for your son, obviously, encouraging him to find other Christians that are there. And there's probably a chaplain. I think she said in, in Iraq, maybe he is, or overseas, yeah. uh, encouraging him to connect with other believers. If he's new in his faith, he probably doesn't even know where to start. I wrote a whole blog of 10 books that just says, what are the best beginner's books in apologetics? And somebody could easily search for that. And it's books like The Reason for God by Tim Keller is a wonderful book. The Case for Christ is an excellent book. Yes. These are just good books that kind of ground you in your faith, help you answer these tough questions. So those are two you can't go wrong with. But my biggest encouragement is just to pray for him, 
to be in contact with him, write him even more than you did before, and just praise the Lord that, you know, we don't want our, we never get to choose how our kids come to faith, but when they do, however it is, even though it's hard that he's away, like just praise the Lord that this will stick in his life for the long haul. Yeah, I love it. Actually, the, the book I gave was uh, the, was Reason for God, and then there was nice. another one he wrote. I'm trying to remember the question skeptic ask, skeptics ask or something like that. I actually pulled it up on Amazon while we were talking, and it lists the date of the purchase. We were, I was on the airplane, and I, I said, nice. you know, get these books for you, and so so that's super fun. So, uh, but but And, and actually, uh, she later came to uh, Moody Church. Uh, she lived in the neighborhood by Moody Church. We got to talk. She was processing her spiritual journey. So people who have—and it sounds like, in this case, Dee's son— she said he never had this interest before, so so we're going to be rejoicing with his openness as well. But anyway, let's go on to our next call. We're going to go to John in Miami. John, you're live on the air with your question your comment. Go right ahead. Yeah, I have a question. I get into these, uh, I guess, on Facebook. So I, he hasn't, guy hasn't talked, hasn't, hasn't, uh, what do you call it, shared with me in a while, but he's an atheist. And I used to know him at work, and I'm retired, and we got on the the, but he he was, and when does it? Because uh, a lot of things he was questioning was just like the, the, some of the doctrine that just didn't make much sense, you know. And 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 uh, so a lot of times I would just tell him, I said, "Well, God, that's in God's hands," and and uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, like he he would send me stuff about the, the devil and Jesus and. Yeah, he sent me one thing and said, uh, uh, um, well, if Jesus told um, um, Judas to go ahead, and he says, wasn't Judas a hero? And now you're talking about how he, he, you know, he would get a lot of those, a lot of those questions. And I was thinking, when does it come become apologetics and when does you have to stop? I mean, I, and, and and discuss maybe some of the concepts and the things in the scripture. No, I think that's I think that's good, John. So John, he's getting questions about what really could sound like some random things, and so at what point? How do you work through those questions? Is uh, John, Sean? How do you? I keep saying Josh again. I, I apologize <laughs> uh, because I know your dad. I guess, I'm guessing that you know that that might happen from time to time with with old people like me. Um, so so how do you? Um, do you field all those questions as they come in? How do you get to the more basic apologetics issues as well? John, by the way, if you'll hold on the line, uh, right after Sean answers, uh, my producer will come on and we'll give you a copy of the book. It's called Evidence for Jesus. So, Sean, what do you think? John, one of the things I'm always trying to assess in questions is, are these genuine questions or is somebody just looking for a fight? And how I respond to it is going to be based on how sincere they are. And this is whether the person is a Christian or not. So I would take one of those issues and I would really dive into it. So is Judas a hero or not? I would go back and I'd do some research. I'd look in the context itself, maybe go read a couple commentaries around Judas. Really think about what your response might be. Now, when Jesus says, go ahead, it's not like he's on the sidelines cheering somebody saying, go ahead, shoot it, take the shot. You're awesome. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I understand what's at stake. You've made this choice. Go ahead with full awareness of it. So he's not endorsing him. In fact, it's the opposite of a hero. It's somebody who knows somebody's going to do something terrible, but knows they have the free will to do it and says, all right, go ahead. 
you have the choice to do so. So I would probe into one issue, go back to your friend with a response. Now, if he asks a question about it, you don't answer, you go, okay, let me do a little more research and come back. If he changed the subject, you say, okay, wait a minute. Was that a satisfactory answer to you? Are you with me? And then when I answer these questions of folks, at some point I'm gonna say, okay, we've answered a few questions. Are you closer to becoming a Christian or not? If not, what's the real issue, the heart mm. of it that's holding you back? because that's what I want to talk about. So these things take patience. And guess what, John, you're going to learn while you're doing this. When you go look, look stuff up, there's stuff on my website. There's other apologists who answer these questions. There's some wonderful ministries out there, standard reason, you know, reason, reasonable faith, et cetera. You'll learn and grow through this process. So be patient, go back to the scriptures and uh, just keep moving forward with your friend. Yeah. And, and that openness will either develop over time or become obvious that there's not an openness. And so, and then you can decide how to respond. You know, you still have a friendship, but it may just be, as you said, someone looking for a fight. So John, remember, hold on the line. We're going to give you a copy of the book, Evidence for Jesus. We're going to go to Karen in Illinois. Karen, you're live on the air with your question and your comment. Go right ahead. Thank you for taking my call. I want to start off by saying, I believe in the Bible. But I'm dealing with some people who don't. They say the Bible is corrupted, that through the years it's been copied over and over, and that there are many errors in it, things that just aren't true, that you can't prove the Bible with the Bible because of all the errors. How do I deal with these individuals? Karen, if you again hold on the line too, in just a moment, uh, our producer, who's also named Karen and also from Illinois, is going to come on and give you a copy of Evidence for Jesus. So I want to ask, I want you to answer Karen's question. I got a follow up question after, but her question is about the corruption of the Bible. You can't trust it because it's been copied. How do you respond to that? Well, the, there were multiple questions in this. So sometimes I will pull them out and say, you can't prove the Bible with the Bible. That's one question. Uh, has the Bible been corrupted over time? That's the second one. So I often try to answer questions with questions. I will say something like, okay, you said the Bible's been copied over time. I would say, is it possible for something to be copied faithfully? Is that a possibility? And actually, we see this with the Dead Sea Scrolls from the copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, comparing them with the Masoretic text, a thousand year difference very, very careful, accurate copying. Now, of course, that's the Old Testament, so I'm just making the point that copying doesn't mean something is corrupted. Then I might ask another question. I would say, okay, uh, what is it that the Bible gets wrong that other ancient books get right? Presumably, you trust other ancient books, whether it's Plato or Thucydides, whatever, uh, why do you trust them and you don't trust the Gospels? Because what's amazing about this is we have more copies earlier for the New Testament than we do really any other ancient book. And many historians who aren't Christians will concede this. So bottom line is you want to ask questions back. They made the statement that the Bible's corrupted. So make that person defend it. Make that person defend it. And then when you do a little research, you'll be able to answer these. We walk these through in Evidence for Jesus. We go into this in depth, even in the larger book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And there's some other wonderful scholars like Dan Wallace 
at the Center for New Testament, the study of New Testament manuscripts, who's done some excellent work here. So you're being challenged in your faith. At this point, you're going to have to do a little bit of homework, but know there's answers there if you're willing to find them. Now, when you present those answers, you'll find out if these are real sincere questions or if the person's just looking for a fight. But your job is to just engage and offer reasonable answers. And if they choose not to believe, you can't force them. Remember, even Jesus let the rich young ruler walk away. Okay, we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. And the question I'm going to follow up with is, you know, in a world where people don't assume or hold to the authority of the Bible, on what basis can you appeal to the Bible for these answers to these questions? On what, how do you, you know, prove the Bible with the Bible if people reject the authority of the Bible? We're going to take your final calls as well. Our number is 877-548-3675. Talking to Sean McDowell about his new book with Josh McDowell, Evidence for Jesus. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live. We've got one last segment with the amazing Sean McDowell. He's serves as Associate Professor in Christian Apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology. Very excited to work with him as I've just come to be the dean at the Talbot School of Theology. Very excited about that. The new book we're talking about is Evidence for Jesus by Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. Together, we've given away a few copies of that. So, um, Sean, I came to Christ in—I grew up in a nominally Catholic home, so we— the Catholic Church was the church we didn't go to on Sundays, but so I had a sense of um, a sense that the Bible was important and probably divinely inspired. I don't know if I use that language, but I didn't think I could understand it that there was a God, but I didn't think I could know Him. So when someone shared the gospel with me, I was in a non-Christian home. Someone shared the gospel with me. I, I had some. I mean, they just showed me the Bible where it says, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Today, increasingly, as we engage our friends and neighbors, showing them that all have sinned from the Bible, they just don't hold the authority of the Bible in the slightest. So how do you start those kinds of journeys, and where does apologetics fit in to those kind of conversations? One of the most popular blogs I've ever written that people just keep finding year after year, I think the title is something like, what are the top, or the top books to give a non-believer? And these are some of the apologetics books we've mentioned, Reads for God, More Than a Carpenter. But my number one book is the Gospel of John. We know from Hebrews 4.12 that the Bible contains an authority within itself that is powerful. So somebody is open to exploring the Christian faith. The first thing I want to say is just read the Bible, read the Gospel of John, and ask yourself, who is this person, Jesus? Why has he turned the world upside down more than anybody else? So evangelistically speaking, that's a move that I commonly make. Now, when it comes to like our wider culture, we can't just say, well, abortion is wrong because the Bible says so any more than a Muslim could say, hold a certain view because it's in the Quran, right? I, broadly speaking, I don't reason from the Bible. I reason to the Bible. So in our wider secular culture, even as Christians, we need to be able to make a case for things without just saying chapter and verse because we are in a pluralistic society in which people have a range of different views. Now, because Christianity is actually true, we can make a case for life without using the scriptures. We can make a case uh, for a biblical view of diversity or a biblical view of justice uh, without using the scriptures. We can make a case for natural marriage. And in our secular society, we need to use what's called natural law rather than specifically pointing towards the scripture itself 
as a whole. But my one qualification I would say, Ed, with that is the Bible's been read and printed more than any book in history. And you know what? It's also shaped the world more than any book in history. And even a lot of non-Christians like Tom Holland recognize that what the Christian faith and the Bible has brought are things like freedom and human rights and human dignity. So although non-believers aren't going to hold the Bible with the same authoritative source, in some ways, it's very fair to say, here's one voice in history that's significant, and it makes this point. You ought to wrestle with it and consider taking it to heart. Fascinating. And of course, Tom Holland's been amazing. You, yeah, we need to have him on our podcast. So, <laughs> but he's, uh, it's really helpful to be Dominion and some other resources as well. All right, let's go to, because uh, I think the question that you just answered, where we got to deal with some of the issues of having discussions, not using the Bible to say, only the Bible to say, this is what we, um, what we believe or advocate for on cultural issues, leads to Robert's question. And Robert's from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, listening on WRM. Yeah, RMB, WRMB. My my question to, to Mr. McDowell is, how do you address uh, apologetically when people come up with uh, the LBGQ uh, agenda and scripture and it's approved and all that? This is a huge topic, one that I've spent literally hundreds of hours <laughs> researching i've written a couple books on it and since you said scripture uh, this is presumably is not with somebody outside the faith but somebody within the faith and that's where we have to know the scriptures and point back to scripture itself and i think there's a few things that we know the real heart of the question is how does the bible define marriage how does the bible define marriage and over and over again from the beginning all the way to the end the Bible defines marriage as one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. That's exactly how the Bible defines it. And sexuality, sex outside of that marriage context, is never placed into a realm that we can agree to disagree on. It's always, in every sin list, considered wrong, whether that's in Mark 7, or it's in Romans, or it's in Ephesians or Galatians. So as a whole, the heart of the question is, how does the Bible define marriage? And we see it in Genesis 1, of course, and in Genesis 2, man shall leave his father and mother. We lost Sean. Okay, so we're back. We're still, we do have some technological problems, and, and Sean was in the middle of answering that question as well. Uh, but but I do think it kind of points to the fact that there are temporal, there are time-oriented questions that people do wrestle with still to this day, and one of them is in areas of sexuality. Uh, great question from Robert, and let me just kind of, if I could finish just hearing the technological difficulties that are there. Uh, Sean is pointing to the consistent witness of the scriptures in and around issues of marriage and sexuality, which I think is key. I was going to follow up with the question, and I'll, I'll maybe we'll get Sean back. We'll see. We're, we've been having technological difficulties on the board today, so forgive us. But um, but uh, I was going to follow up with the question. Well, Jesus never talked specifically about homosexuality, and uh, and then but he does talk about marriage and the totality of the scriptures, all inspired by God. As Christians, we believe speaks about these issues consistently. Um, and again, we as Christians, we live in a society that has different views, but as Christians, the scriptures point us to a different reality and perhaps a different way of living as well. 
Sean, I hear we have you back on the phone. Let's let's continue and just pick up one other question related to that. I kind of I kind of covered the part and finished the thought in and around mm-hmm. issues of sexuality. But talk to us about other timely issues. What are some things that are today questions in apologetics that you have to wrestle through? We got about a minute and a half, two minutes left. Well, I think huge questions are still the intersection of science and faith. Although we've moved towards what's often called a postmodern culture, there's still a sense that scientists have the authority to tell us how the world works. So there's a lot of uh, people with questions. You know, how old is the earth? That was an older kind of question, but it still creeps up in. And there's a sense of people like, if I believe the Bible, does that mean I have to abandon modern science? There's questions around evolution and what it means and whether it's reconcilable with the scriptures. So I think some of the biggest questions are science and faith. And the other big questions are, you know, related to the exclusiveness of Jesus. I'd say the two biggest virtues we're taught today are diversity and inclusion. And Christianity says that Jesus is the only way. Doesn't sound very inclusive. And that's a whole conversation we could have. We have a chapter in that in the book, but really the key is everybody claims to be the only way. Christianity is actually arguably the most inclusive religion. Jesus calls everybody, male, female, slave, free, you know, rich, poor, to believe in him. And Jesus has the authority to speak on spiritual issues. He rose from the grave. He fulfilled prophecy. He's given the world the greatest ethical teachings it's ever known. He lived a sinless life. So whether we like it or not, Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, claims to be the only way. And he said that what we conclude about his identity shapes us for eternity. So those are two questions we got to wrestle with today. Well, Sean, you have been amazing and very patient with our technological problems. My apologies for them. I've had to switch to the phone. So we've had some technological glitches here or there. So that's why people may be hearing me a little differently. But the book is Evidence for Jesus by Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. And if you go to edstetzerlive.com, you can see all of Sean's resources as well. He's written over 20 books, Chasing Love, The State of the Apostles, Evidence for Jesus, Timeless Answers, The Tough Questions About Christ, discussed today. And again, his blog is all linked at edstetzerlive.com. Again, go to seanmcdowell.org as well. And and thankful for the privilege we're going to have to serve together. And I'm looking forward to working with you at the Talbot School of Theology. Let me thank also our team here, uh, Karen Hendren, our producer, Courtney Young, who's worked extra today. He's trying to get the technology working uh, as our engineer and Lynn on the phone. So here at today's program again, go to edstetzerlive.com or the Moody Radio app, Edstetzerlive. This is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.